everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. Saving starts with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Lie number one. To end racism, we must agree there is nothing permanent about it. Lie number two. Only white people have paid the price for desegregation. And lie number three. Racism only hurts black people and people of color. Asserting that the ultimate antidote for the insanity that is racism is to deepen our knowledge of self and understand our national and ethnic origins. Kicking off a multi-city tour from New York to San Francisco beginning January 14th for his deeply personal and timely new book entitled Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, a parable of American healing. Offering real hope for unifying a broken nation, one of America's principal modern-day advocates for human rights and justice, the son of a white father and black mother, and a descendant of Robert E. Lee, scholar, journalist, civil rights leader, and philanthropist, Ben Jealous is bringing full attention to the three big lies that blacks and whites need to know to end racism. Hailed by the Washington Post as one of the nation's most prominent civil rights leaders, Dallas has devoted his life and career, including his tenure as president of the NAACP, to ending injustice and racism by strengthening the bonds among Americans of all races, creeds, colors, and political ideologies. In his book, Jealous draws inspiring lessons and hope for restoring our country's strength and unity from stories of his ancestors, both black and white, as well as his path-breaking partnerships with conservative leaders and Republican governors. Interweaving vivid anecdotes of family, friends, mentors, colleagues, and strangers who have shaped his life's mission and his faith in humanity. With his informed, thought-provoking, and conscious-raising views on racial profiling, the connection between social isolation and suicide, the toll of mass incarceration on our nation, and race and racism. Described as a profound exploration of the meaning of race and family, a timely meditation, and a wonderful personal memoir. In his latest masterpiece, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, among many powerful takeaways, Jealous leaves readers with three big lessons. Here with us to discuss his new book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, a parable of American healing, to talk race relations and our collective path forward. We have Professor of the Practice at the University of Pennsylvania and the Executive Director of the Sierra Club. Our very special guest, scholar, journalist, civil rights leader, and philanthropist, Mr. Ben Jealous. This is the Black Information Network Daily Podcast, and I'm your host, Ramses Ja. Ben Jealous, welcome back to the show. How you doing, man? Ramses, it's always good to be with you, bro. Likewise, likewise. I mean, good to have you know, back. You're so, Ramses, um, and I'm jealous. Like, <laughs> that every time. You got, you got to keep those coming, man. I love those. <laughs> Excellent. Um, okay, so it's been a while since you've been on the show, but uh, you know, a lot of our listeners are familiar with um, uh, you because of you know your work in the community, and then of course some are familiar with, you know, the last time you were on the show with us. Uh, but for our new listeners, obviously the show has done some growing. Um, just give a brief introduction of yourself, sort of your background and what led you to, you know, the career path that you're on. And then we'll get into the things you're doing uh, at present. Brother, you know, I mean, I was born on a bridge between black and white, north and south, mm-hmm. even the old world, the East Coast, and the cutting edge that is that is Northern California. 
And most of my life, that bridge was on fire. You know, mm. My parents stepped onto it when they got married. My father was disowned and disinherited by his grandfather. My mom was ostracized by many of her friends who were active in the Black Power movement. And um, my book is very much an extension of that lived experience, trying to help heal a family and parents who were civil rights workers trying to help heal the country. Mm. What really cast me into this, the urgency of writing the book, honestly, was January 6th, 2021, uh, two years ago. I live in the exurbs of Baltimore and the exurbs of D.C., kind of where they overlap, in a community where a lot of my neighbors have Trump flags. There was a lot of casual talk about a looming civil war. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we had a failed coup. And I decided I want to write a book, Ramsey. So you can imagine, you know, God willing, King was still with us today. He'd be in his 90s. Mm-hmm. And imagine that that jailer was, was likely the case. He, he spoke about in Birmingham, the one that was making so little money that he urged him to join the movement too. Right. Was still alive, but hadn't figured it out yet. A book that he could hand to that jailer and say, hey, brother, why don't you read this? Maybe you'll finally get it. Because it's a time we've got to cast a wide net for common sense mm-hmm. and for common understanding and for the realization of what Dr. King was trying to get the country to understand when he was assassinated. He was not assassinated leading a desegregation effort. He was assassinated trying to organize a poor people's campaign to unite poor people yeah. across color lines to assert their common demand uh, that they get better pay on the job, you know, access to better housing, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And what he understood, and it's one of the big lies that go into the book, Ramsey's not close on this. What King understood was the ultimate price for the continuation of racism is mass poverty. Mm. Racism was a tool of a colonial enterprise that had been failing for a century to keep African indentured servants, excuse me, to keep African slaves and European indentured servants from rebelling together. They tried... A military response didn't quite work. They tried new laws, didn't quite work. They reached for the cudgel that is culture. finally seemed to take. And that shift, the early 1700s, was the shifting of the meaning of race from essentially a 600-year-old word for tribe to a color caste system that defined the people at the bottom as subhuman and the people at the top as superhuman. And that, that succeeded. You know, there's something um, interesting in that's that it, it may be because, you know, we're right around um, the uh, Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. Um, but this has come up a couple of times recently on the show in this space where we've discussed exactly how far um, the the version of Dr. King that we celebrate uh, in this country today is from the actual Dr. King that was on the ground at, yeah, yeah. In, those final, in those final days and months uh, of his life and what his agenda was and what he had learned um, and the direction in which he was moving. And you're absolutely right. Um, you know, shifting his focus um, toward poor people uh, and the common interest of the poor around the country um, really rattled a lot of feathers and ultimately, um, you know, we were on the on a call with um, uh, Dr. Russ Wigginton, uh, who is the director of the National Civil Rights Museum in uh, Memphis. And, um, you know, he had obviously a lot to say about, you know, the direction that Dr. King was going in and, and the implications. And, um, you know, he mentioned something that that I know to be true which was that Dr. King was, uh, I think it was a Gallup poll or something that they were taking at the time. Dr. King was, I think he had a a 20% approval rating uh, among white and black people, white and black populations at the time when he was alive. And then now (laughs) people looking back on him, it might be closer to hundred percent approval rating. And so it's funny how um, the, the version of Dr. King that we remember is kind of romanticized and, in my belief, whitewashed uh, so much so that even simplified. Yeah, simplified, like simplified. That's a that's a great way to say it. Um, and the you know the conservative, especially the deeply conservative, uh, 
faction of this country, um, you know, if you were to compare compare apples to apples, they'd be completely hypocritical if you kind of held them and their values up to those that Dr. King stood for in practice. But the version of Dr. King that they want to have aligned with them and their values, which is, you know, little black boys and little white girls, you know, I have a dream, that sort of thing. Um, they kind of lean on it every year. And it's almost like they pull Dr. King a little bit further <laughs> in that direction without kind of looking at the whole story. So it's interesting that this, again, this theme keeps coming up. And that actually brings me um, to my next question. Uh, speaking of like the deeply conservative uh, facet of this country, and, you know, you mentioned January 6th and how uh, inspirational that that moment was in terms of, you know, uh, you're creating this book. Um, in recent, the recent events in Brazil have obviously yeah. rattled <laughs> the, the world, if I'm honest. And certainly those of us who feel like, you know, the conservatism in this country has really uh, put a stain on our country, our democracy, our way of life, and and really our human values. Um, so, uh, w without, uh, I guess, painting a fuller picture, there, I think my question is: What is it that really inspired you to write the book? Um, and I guess, was it to prevent? or to forewarn or to perhaps prepare people for events like what we've seen in Brazil? Honestly, it was the purpose of the book was to get people to uh, keep the faith. Mm. We can move through the middle of this century. We're still looms far in front of us. Um, like we moved through the middle of the last one, like we moved through the middle of the one before that, like we moved through the middle of the one before that. Okay. And still, been the arc of the moral universe towards justice before the end of the century. You know, I was with a woman yesterday. It was despairing. She said, he's just a little baby, and there's climate change, and there's racial antagonisms, and there's a rising, I don't even say conservative movement, it's a rising authoritarian movement in this country. What does that portend? And I said, well, don't forget your own grandmother, because a hundred years ago, or your own great-grandmother, because a hundred years ago, child born, say, in 1922, would have been born a year after the Red Summer when black vets were murdered across the country, lynched across the country, the year before Rosewood, and two years before the burning of Black Wall Street. Like, wow. we have patterns in this country that repeat themselves, and we've got to understand, obviously, what was challenging about that, but also why there's hope in that. And for my grandmother, who... I was also racing against the clock. I wanted to get the manuscript done before she died. You know, she, uh, she was a hero. A lot of her history is in this book. Her grandfather's history is in this book. Black woman, social worker, graduated from the University of Pennsylvania two years before Brown versus Board. Would go right back to Baltimore, lead a crusade against gentlemen's clubs who are sexually exploiting like 12-year-olds, get them shut down, stand up child protective services to make sure that they come back. And train a young social worker along the way would go on to be a U.S. senator named Barbara Mikulski. My grandmother was a rebel to the court. She worked for Planned Parenthood in 1940. Okay. Tough woman. And her optimism really helped sustain me. She saw, she would say, Ramsey's kind of closing this and jumping more questions. She'd say, it's true that, you know, pessimists are right more often. Optimists win more often. Why? Because life is like a boxing match. Pessimist gets in round one, round two, round three, says the same thing every time. Man, if I get in that ring, I'm going to get beat up. I'm going to get knocked down. Happens three rounds in a row. They throw on the towel by the fourth. They're done. The optimist is like Muhammad Ali in the Rumble in the Jungle. Gets in knowing they're going to get beat up every round. Also knowing they simply have to be standing in the 12th. Mm. As long as you're the only one standing in the 12th, it's all good. Yeah. In other words, the, uh, the optimist gets in the ring saying, this might be the round I'm standing. This might be the round I don't get knocked down. Mm. And it's that optimism that we have to continue to cultivate in ourselves. Pessimists point to facts all the time. And yet optimists tend to be the ones who actually win the day. And it's a time to prepare our children to win the day. 
I love that. And and it's so funny that you actually said prepare our children to win the day because hand to God, uh, I dropped my son off to school this morning and we were listening to uh, Sounds of Blackness. The song is called Optimistic and it's a it's a favorite of, you know, mine growing up because it was one of the few uh, non-church songs that we could actually listen to because it kind of rode that that border. So it's it's interesting. I, I love that. All right. So um obviously this book is about race and racism. So uh, one of the points that you make in the book is that there are three big lies about race. So would you talk to us about those? Sure. You know, the big one, the sort of overarching one is that it's always been this way. So it's always going to be this way. Mm -hmm. That's just not true. The American experiment, even in the more kind of uh, nuclear British version, 1619 Virginia, slavery, all that existed for a hundred years before the definition of race and racism that we grew up with started. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, race was a British word for tribe, came from the Italian word raza, meaning genus type or applied to people, tribe, nation. And then it shifts. And what's important about that, I talked about a little bit earlier, but to drive a finer point, Charles V. Hamilton, the co-author of Black Power, taught me politics 101 at Columbia University. And Professor Hamilton talking about that phenomenon that and you say, never forget, before there were slave rebellions, there were colonial rebellions, European indentured servants, African slaves rising up together. Why is that important, Mr. Jealous? Because politics is a lot like physics. For every action, there will be an equal and opposite reaction. reaction. You call that Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Obama, Trump, like that's that part of the physics. The other part of the physics that applies to this is, he said, and something in motion will return to its original state. He said, we misremember the original state. Back then it was roots. Now it's Django or 12 years of slave. Invariably, they showed slavery near its end. And you would say, the end is not the beginning. It's not the origin. The origin is where it started. And where it started was with a state of indentured servitude and a state of slavery that were more like each other than not. They would get increasingly differentiated over time. Mm. And with men and women who, yes, they saw each other's color. They knew they were of different nations. They knew they were of different continents. They also saw each other as men and women, not superhuman and subhuman, not shadow and real people. And they kept rebelling together. And he said, what we will get back to is the masses at the bottom of this economy, uh, the lower 98% or so, uh, rebelling together in the interest of all their children. He said, that's where we come from and that's where we're headed. Okay. Now, now talk to us about uh, Mamie Todd Bland um, and, and her influence on your family and I guess her significance in the, uh, in the overall story here. Mamie Todd, Mamie Todd, Mamie Bland Todd, my, my grandmother, we called her Mamie. Um, you know, she, she was the matriarch uh, for a long time in our family, probably since she was about 50. She kind of held everybody together, maybe in some ways since she was 14. She was the second oldest in her family. Uh, and yet her father, even though she was a girl, gave her a Model A in pieces when she was 12 and said, when you put this together, I will go to the sheriff and I'll get you a special license just for this county so you can drive your siblings to school. And she was driving at 13, her eldest sister, her four younger siblings to school in an old Montelay with a rumble seat. Mm. And that was her. She was tough. She was determined. And she served others. She also told history. She was a family griot. She would repeat stories over and over, and she told history as a form of instruction. She didn't expect you to fight the same battles. She just, like an old general, wanted you better prepared for your battles, for understanding what hers had been, how she had won, and what she learned from losing some. And then sometimes she just left you with these riddles she didn't even seem to understand the case of the title of the book, never forget our people were always free. I, mean, I could have just dismissed that as like a colloquial expression of her cousin. Thomas Jefferson was her cousin. Um, and he said, you know, 
all men are created equal with certain inalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Kind of a fancy way to say our people are always free. Mm-hmm. But in my grandmother's case, as I go into in the book, she was actually, without much critical thinking, echoing an old battle cry from the first generation enslaved in our family. And I unravel all that in the book through DNA, through documents, through parallels from other people's lives, figuring out what this must have been. And it blew my mind, Ramsey, when I got it all done. It changed our, you know, didn't change the fact we were black, didn't change the fact we descended from you know, Africans enslaved, definitely made uh, our understanding of who those Africans were and what their experience was much more clear. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash B-I-N today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash B-I-N. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. We are here today with professor of the practice at the University of Pennsylvania and the executive director of the Sierra Club, scholar, journalist, civil rights leader, and philanthropist, Mr. Ben Jealous, discussing his new book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, a parable of American healing, talking race relations, and our collective path forward. You know, there's there's something special about this because the uh, the way the story is woven together is it's something that a lot of us are are missing. You know, this is not something that we all have um, access to. And so to kind of get a glimpse into what richness there would be in our history, um, potentially, uh, I think that's, that's special. That That's quite special. There's, um, there's something special about this particular, uh, element as well. And that's that, you know, we tend to, um, center our ramp our families rather around the the matriarch um to to a degree that you know other tribes um 
maybe maybe they don't do it quite uh, the same way that we do. You know, a lot of families and and races and cultures they they center around the the fathers and you know, I know that for a lot of black people, it's it's grandma's house that we go to, even if she's still married to grandpa's is grandma's house, you know. Um, and you know, again, I tell white friends, I say, you know, y'all, y'all have lots of summer camps. Black folks just have one. It's called grandma's house. There you go. Different locations across the country, but we all go to the same camp. Yeah, there you go. So exactly, <laughs> exactly. I love that. Now, another thing about the book, though, is, you know, uh, you you illuminate the fact that you're a descendant from both slaves and Confederates. Um, you're the son of a white father and a black mother, product of a 1966 interracial marriage, which was um, just a few years after uh, that type of marriage became legal nationwide. Actually before, just before. Just before. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Talk to us about the significance of your parents' marriage and the impacts that that had on you and how you were able to kind of reconcile the contradictions in your genealogy and embrace all of your ancestors. Yeah. You know, it's, um, my parents' marriage gave me a lot of courage when I was president of NAACP to work very hard to hold that organization together mm -hmm. as we moved it to endorse marriage equality for the LGBTQ community. And I, I understood the, special scorn reserved for children whose parents' relationships are thought to be taboo. And um, I wanted to hasten the day when it would be normal, you know, for anybody uh, to just have parents, whatever those parents were, two men, two women, one of each, whatever. Um, that was a big impact on me. It also showed me, you know, what it's like to have a, loving white father of a black son. And that's actually possible because there obviously were a lot of white fathers of black sons. Frederick Douglass had one, mm -hmm. not so loving. But really getting into my family history kind of blew my mind again and again. I mean, there was a day I figured out, man, I'm like cousins of both Dick Cheney and Robert E. Lee. That, that day messed me up. Man. I, I had to step away from the keyboard for like a week. Mm. Um, but there were there were other days when I'm sitting there. Henry Louis Gates Jr. helped me find my grand the will of the man who owned my grandmother's paternal grandfather and paternal great grandfather at the end of slavery. And there's a full paragraph in that will def defending only one slave, protecting only one slave. The man had many, but he was only protecting one his manservant, that by DNA and various documents, Henry Louis Gates Jr. and I figured out was his older brother. Mm. He was dying and he knew that his six-year older brother, who he referred to as his manservant, could be sold, could be mistreated, could be just put out in the field. And he wanted none of that. It didn't excuse the fact that he kept him enslaved or any of the outrage associated with that. But it did show that he understood that this was his brother, that our dysfunctional American family was even more clear that it was a family when it was even more dysfunctional. And, um, and it helped contextualize why the great grandfather's son, her grandfather, who knew when he walked out of slavery on its last day in Virginia, the end of the Battle of Appomattox, over the corpses, he knew he was walking over corpses of his white cousin, just like his wife did. He also knew he was walking out of his uncle's house. And that man, half a lifetime later, if you will, or he was 17, so by the time he was 35, he was leader of the Black Republicans in Virginia. And in a time that was an especially fraught time, Reconstruction had been dead for five years. The Hayes-Tilden Compromise was five years earlier, 1876. Confederates had been reenfranchised for half a decade. The old plantation owner class was asserting its dominance over the state again. And they were saying they were going to shut down the free public schools that the Reconstruction governments had started. And he looked and he saw working class whites bolt the conservative party, the Democratic Party, and create their own party, the readjusters, with a, with a demand, readjust the Civil War debt terms so you can keep our free public schools open. Mm. He's like, we started those schools. Who's their leader? Their leader, General William B. Mahone. A real estate map, excuse me, a uh, railroad magnate who, unlike the other railroad owners of the day who were like tech guys today, did not suppress the populist rebellion. The others were. He joined it. He said, I'm a Southern railroad owner. I need that political might. 
And I agree with them. The schools should stay open. And my grandmother's grandfather approached him. Edward David Bland was his name. Edward David Bland Freeman approaches William B. Mahone General and says, let's make a deal. I'll lead blacks into your party. I'll give you the power you need to take over the government, and we'll lead this together. And the general agrees. And he approached him even knowing that that general, according to black folks, was a war criminal. He had massacred an entire black regiment that surrendered during the war. But here they were 15 years later, five years into the terror of the Ku Klux Klan. By the way, the terror of the Ku Klux Klan threatened both groups. And, um, well, a war criminal starts to look pretty good when you're fighting the Klan. <laughs> they, and they team up, they take over the entire government. The governorship, both senatorships, both houses of the state legislature. They saved those free public schools. They radically expand Virginia Tech, making what it still is today the working person's rival to UVA. They build Virginia State University, the first public black college south of the Mason-Dixon. They abolished the public whipping post, which at the time was only reserved for black folks to be tortured in the town square. Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar. And they abolish, some people forget that went way, way past slavery. And they abolish the poll tax. And that blew my mind. Now, last year, I was getting arrested from the White House multiple times, even spent a night in jail, trying to get Biden to be more aggressive in protecting our voting rights. And I'd always thought of the poll tax as a response to Reconstruction, a way to just simply assault Black power. I hadn't focused as much on the fact that in addition to disenfranchising 80% of Blacks, it disenfranchised Ramsey's fully 50% of whites. Nor, and I never knew that Confederates and Freeman had teamed up in the gap between the end of Reconstruction and the start of Jim Crow. And what I realized is that that law, when they wove the poll tax, they reasserted it and put it into the state constitution to make it permanent. They didn't just basically outlaw black power, they outlawed multiracial populist movements like the one that had just seized control of the state government. And yet, those folks laid the, literally laid the, seal, the seeds for the New Deal coalition. Certainly in Virginia, the young lieutenants and the readjusters would be the old lieutenants in FDR's coalition. So there is a magnetism amongst working people of all colors, keep coming back together throughout history. In the case of the readjusters, they never taught it to us. It was removed from textbooks. It was seen basically as dangerous. Um, but there's more there than we realize at any moment in history. Sure. Sure. And I think, I think that what that shows us uh, more than everything is that, you know, working together is something that it, it, obviously it can be very challenging, but it's something that is possible and necessary. Um, and I, you know, you touched on it briefly. You mentioned that your distant cousins to, uh, Dick Cheney and to uh, what was it? Robert E. Lee, you mentioned. Was that it? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, in your in your path and your career, I know you've had to kind of reach across the aisle and work with some people who probably share some drastically different views on on most everything from you. Most everything. Yeah. 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 So let's talk about that for a second. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, about the future uh, regarding the possibilities of a successful a coalition between conservatives and Republicans or in progressives. Yeah. So it's issue by issue and you've got to work it issue by issue mm -hmm. and you got to look for the points of commonality. One of the ways that we disempower, I talk about this in the book, one of the ways that we disempower ourselves, those of us who consider ourselves progressives is we don't, we stay silent about the, the deep faith that motivates many of us. Reformed Jews have put social justice at the center of their religious life for half a century and grown as a de denomination as a result, for example. Obviously, Dr. King, very motivated by his faith, and many of us as well, but we see it like as gauche or something, you know? Mm -hmm. And yet, the way that I got the former, well, at the time, the Republican governor of Virginia, who was a conservative, backed by the Tea Party, seen as a real law and order type, mm. um, to do something that the Democrat, Tim Kaine, had refused 
to re-enfranchise formerly incarcerated people in Virginia. One of two states with a lifetime ban. Now Senator Tim Kaine was then Governor Tim Kaine. He rode into his political future, if you will, by citing his past as a civil rights lawyer. And yet when the head of the NAACP called and said, hey, it's the season of clemency, it's the end of your term, why don't you re-enfranchise formerly incarcerated people in your state? He said, no. And so I called his Republican successor and he said, a guy named Bob McDonald, Bob said, Ben, come on down, we talked. He said, absolutely. And where we really connected, where I saw his head nod deeply is talking about the right to redemption. Mm. Those of us who are people of faith and even those of us who have no faith at all believe that humans are capable of redeeming themselves. And once redeemed, absolutely should be able to rejoin their community and help lead it, certainly contribute to it. And so he did what no governor had done in the history of Virginia. He re-enfranchised thousands of formerly incarcerated people, took the paperwork under Tim Kaine, was 10 pages, made it one page. And anybody who filled it out, he would prove. We spent two years together trying to get build a, a coalition in the legislature, but we fell a few votes short. But Nathan Deal, uh, Rick Perry, Arnold Schwarzenegger, worked with them successfully to help shrink the prison populations of their state. And um, they were all Republican governors, uh, but they understood that they couldn't achieve their goals and we couldn't achieve ours if prisons kept eating everybody's lunch every year. Like literally they were like this growing magic crystal in the state budget. Sure. They just kept eating up other things principally public universities. Every student in America pays a price for the prison industrial complex. Uh, long story short, we've gone from prisons being like a 2% of most state budgets to being over 10%. Yeah. And where that's squeezed is it squeezed public universities. They went from being freed to driving students into debt. That's crazy. And, and I think, again, that further illuminates um, exactly how beneficial to all of us and to our way of life, you know, working together can be. Um, and, and, and I, I, w I just want to add something that, you know, I say as often as I can, whenever I have a microphone in an audience, I'm a hundred percent in agreement with you that, um, people deserve the right to learn from their lessons. You know, nobody is simply the worst thing they've ever done. In fact, I think that's something that I borrowed from, uh, uh, one of my my other heroes, uh, his name is Brian Stevenson. Um, and, uh, you know, so kudos to you for um, for making or helping make that happen and working with uh, with your um, conservative uh, uh, counterparts. To yeah, I mean, friends, you know, it's like, you know, it's like in, in order to have a friend, you really have to only agree on one thing. Sure. You know, right. like, like, you know, we all have guys that we like to talk to. The only thing that we share is like an interest in football or whatever, you know, like whatever the sport is or whoever the comedian is. But man, like they light up and we light up talking about that one thing. The crazy thing is you find the one thing, you usually find two or three things. Sure. And in the context of a democracy, you can get a whole lot of good done that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is the lesson, if I'm honest, that I'm, I'm still learning. I never want to pretend like I, I got it all figured out. Um, you know, that was a, a tough one for me because the things that I was so passionate about, um, they, they were like kind of all consuming, uh, in terms of, you know, my motivation, my mind, my passion. And often enough that would cloud, you know, my, uh, vision, uh, and, and, and complicate my strategy because the truth of the matter is that, you know, I live, I live in Arizona, so there's lots of, um, deeply conservative, uh, often far right conservatives that are in positions of power. And we have to have some tough conversations and it doesn't matter how much logic and, you know, what, whatever they have their agenda. And, you know, that just is what it is. And so kind of coming to the table, guns blazing, um, it, it, it has its, it has its place, but often enough, I think you're absolutely right. Making sure that we find some common ground in building from there. That's often, uh, more effective, uh, overwhelmingly <laughs> more effective right. place in, in, in terms of the, uh, outcomes. And it's just a better place to start a lot less taxing mentally and emotionally as well. So, 
Yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly right. And it's also, I mean, it just, uh, it gives you hope. Mm-hmm. You know, I, um, I lived out in the woods uh, in Maryland, in a pretty conservative area for a long time and was content to just live in the woods on the water, paddleboard, get on the boat with my kids. This was my refuge. Didn't really need to know the neighbors. And then COVID happened. And well, we're bourgeois, so we ended up with a dog. And mm-hmm. you know, now, now I'm walking the neighborhood with the uh, with the kids and the dog, and we're getting to know all the neighbors. And at the very least, like we all love dogs, you know. And now I have some good friends who we figured out like we like dogs, we like bourbon, and you know, we like to talk about like old school American history and learn from each other. We don't agree on a whole lot except for like our kids, dogs in the water and the love of debating history. But that's, you know, you can build a friendship around that. I love that. I love that. Again, a lesson I'm, I'm actively learning. So I take your words as encouragement that I'm, I'm, I'm on the right path. So, so I, I, I shall continue. Um, so, yeah. So let's talk um, about some of the ways that America can end structural racism. So share your thoughts on, what the average citizen, black or white, can and should do to end racism. And also, if you can, touch on corporate America's role and responsibility um, toward that end. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, unpacking the lies in this book, recognize first, accept first that we can undo what we've done. The legacy of racism in this country is something we created, our forebears created, we can undo it. Except number two, that all communities paid a price for um, desegregation. Uh, yeah, some folks had more competition finding jobs. Other folks, black business people, lost their businesses and thousands and tens of thousands of them because they still had static at the bank. Uh, but other people were competing for their, for their market share. Sure. Both communities paid a price. Also recognize that all communities are being hurt by, by racism. Racism among other things, makes white suffering invisible. When was the last time you had a conversation about the fact that white men over 55 die from bullets from suicide more frequently than black men and boys between 15 and 30 die from bullets from homicide? When was the last time you had a real conversation about white poverty in this country and the families that have been trapped multi-generationally? It used to be that the white poor were very visible and the country had a lot of support for ending poverty. And then things flipped. And after the civil rights movement, all the faces of poverty in our media tend to be black and brown. Public support plummeted. And both sets of poor have suffered. Mm. The, but you know, when I talk to folks in corporate America, I talk to white men specifically, I tell them the kind of the, the three things that my father figured out. The first is that Women can't end sexism by themselves. If they would have, I mean, if they could have, they would have, trust me. Mm-hmm. And black folks, we can't end, or brown folks, people of color, we can't end racism by ourselves. And, you know, Dick Gregory used different words, but he said if we could have put that dog down ourselves, we would have a long time ago. Sure. Um, the other, you know, the next thing is if you ever feel yourself about to do something and say a missionary might do, like give advice or preach, like stop, just stop. And understand that what a black person or a woman, you know, or a, a woman, a person of color, group underrepresented in your corporation needs to succeed is for you to back them. White men know what it's like to be back. They know if it was them or somebody else who got a DUI but kept their job. They know somebody else who really messed up the first like three sales pitches but people kept training them and saying, you're learning, you're learning. And then eventually they got it and became a great salesperson. Too often, tradition really, in a lot of corporations for women and people of color is you get one shot. If you're amazing, right, you just make every single shot. Of course, you can move on up the ladder. But if not, then it's like that old Southern adage, give the boy enough rope to head himself. You know, you got your shot. You're done. So my dad said, look, you just got to back people. Now, the last thing is what you and I say, man, I figured out um, by like mentoring a young person who had less than, than we did. And there's a point in mentoring where sometimes you can feel a little guilty. You're like, ah, I'm getting more out of this than the kid is. <laughs> and they're like, but it's okay because that kid's getting something from you that you can't get from anybody else. Yeah. 
Well, the same thing happens for white men who become champions for inclusion in their corporations. I talk about this in the book. Right? The, the hidden pandemic in, in, for like privileged white men is social isolation. Uh, and they, and it's the privileged white men who, who tend to drive suicide in the white community even more than the, than the poor white men. Really? I didn't know that. And, and it's, um, uh, and every white guy I know who's become a champion for inclusion has become more interesting to themselves, become happier, more fulfilled individuals because their friendship network, which like all men, black or white, any other color in between, uh, statistically shrinks after your last year of formal education, whenever that was, high school, college, grad school, whatever, it starts to shrink, suddenly the air starts to take back off again and expand. You know, they're going to these women's conferences, they're going to NAACP or National Council of La Raza events, yeah. get a whole new rainbow of friends. And they're not just more interesting to other people, but they're happier and they're more interesting to themselves. So, yeah. So, you know, that's, that's how I talk about it to folks. And it turns out to be true. I mean, we do throw better parties. And honestly, when I, whenever I've been to like an HRC party, to like a gay community party, they're actually often better than ours. So, you know what I'm saying? Sure, sure. <laughs> I, I go with that, yeah. <laughs> you know, something funny, uh, just to kind of piggyback off of that, um, you know, so I'm a DJ. That's that's kind of how I ended up in this space. I'm an actual DJ, two turntables, microphone mixer, all that. And uh, often enough, I'll get called to uh, do pride events. I have um, I own some nightclubs here in, in Phoenix and uh, I have some other friends that do as well. And a friend that has a, uh, a gay nightclub, well, I guess it's a lesbian nightclub. She invites me down probably every couple of years to DJ her pride events or whatever. And yeah, you're absolutely right. They throw a great party. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I love that. I love that you mentioned that. So, well, how about this? Before we let you go. Um, I want to make sure that we definitely plug this book and make sure that uh, folks know um, where to get it. But first, uh, briefly, um, what would you most like readers to take away from Never Forget Our People Were Always Free? We can end racism. We can pull our country together. And it's the key for unlocking prosperity for our country and all our communities. I think that's reason enough right there. I love it. I love it. So, so this um, is the book. It's called uh, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free. My Zoom background's having its way with it. Never Forget Our People Were Always Free. You can obviously you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at any independent bookstore. Just buy it wherever you buy a book. If you don't have it, ask them uh, to get it in stock. Um, and then, you know, come up, you know, the book has great history, but everything, you know, chapter one, um, but everything starts with, with some experience. You know, chapter one starts with training, training, training Dave Chappelle how to shoot. Because uh, he's afraid that a race war might break out on Y2K. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and that, and I started there because that's how the century started. Uh, it's been a rough century so far, but I have faith that we can bend the arc towards justice by the end. I love that. I love it. I love it. So, um, do me a favor, though. Uh, I do want you to drop your social media as well and uh, hit the website one more time. Yeah. So it's at Ben Jealous, at Ben Jealous. At Ben Jealous on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, it's the same thing. At Ben Jealous, like LinkedIn's the same thing too. Um, find me on any of those, and the book is Never Forget. Our, never forget our people were always free. Uh, unfortunately, the website's lagging a little bit behind the launch, but uh, you can find it anywhere books are sold. Go on Amazon.com. That'll work. All right. Well, once again, thank you very much for coming on to share your insights with us today. And for everything that you are doing, have done, and will do in the future uh, to support the Black uh, community and the progress of our nation as a whole. Thank you, Ramses, for just mixing it up in all the ways you do. And once again, you're Ramses, and I'm still jealous. <laughs> we'll take it. Once again, today's guest is professor of the practice at the University of Pennsylvania and the executive director of the Sierra Club, scholar, journalist, civil rights leader, and philanthropist, Mr. Ben Jealous. Honest, uplifting, and optimistic. Never forget our people were always free is essential reading for all Americans and leaves readers with three big lessons. Number one, we can end racism. Number two, the path to do that is to truly be like King. And number three, we must build uncomfortably large coalitions. 
as Ben Jealous so thoughtfully broadcasts in his new book and throughout his purpose and passionate life's work that he is dedicated to healing and human rights. Black, brown, yellow and white, conservative, moderate and progressive, Republican and Democrat, Christian, Jewish, Muslim and atheist. We are all Americans and we all need to work together to make our divided and wounded country whole. Following the example of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., drawing as wide a circle of compassion as possible, speaking in the traditionally unifying American languages of aspiration, patriotism, faith, and love. As we reflect on today's conversation, may we forever be inspired and moved to be the antidote, living in love, service, compassion, and community. With both the opportunity and responsibility, we can each be an integral part of the solution and ultimately can individually and collectively live our best lives beyond all of our ancestors' most wildest dreams. This has been a production of the Black Information Network. Today's show was produced by Chris Thompson. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, use the red microphone talkback feature on the iHeartRadio app. We'd love to hear from you. While you're there, be sure to hit subscribe and download all of our episodes. Find your daily podcast host at Ramses Jaw on all social media. We look forward to your joining us tomorrow as we share our news with our voice from our perspective right here on the Black Information Network daily podcast. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io/ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.